I was having a cookie before this recording. It is currently 4.30 p.m. in the afternoon. And I said to Eugene, the last time I ate today was around 10 in the morning. And then I was saying how, well, now I don't really feel like you have to eat when you're not hungry. Eugene was like, intermittent isn't fasting. that obvious? Kind of thing. <laughs> Anyways. Um, I don't know. I don't subscribe to like a definite. And then you were going to make some sort of factual point about how. Factual point. The factual point is this. I read somewhere. I forget. Sorry. Not good citation. That before the factory job, people used to just eat two meals a day, like two, you know, bigger meals a day. But then after people started having to go to work from nine to five, nine is too early. So they have to eat something before they leave. Yeah. Right. And then they're not going to bake it back home. Like they're not going to go the whole day without eating. So now they have to pack a lunch and they Got come home it. and then eat dinner. And the dinner is like a social thing as well. Right. Yes. So that's where like yeah. the three meals yeah. comes from. Yeah. The rise of the factory jobs. So neither you and I work in a factory or work a nine to five. So there's really no reason we should be eating, you know, exactly according to that schedule. Want. This is Making It Up, co-hosted by myself, Sharice Poon, and Eugene Can. We come together on a weekly basis to talk about things that we are interested in, have questions about, want to get each other's thoughts on. Making It Up is produced by Makin, which is original storytelling at its purest, through captivating audio, engaging words, and beautiful visuals. Making It Up is an exercise in analyzing and dissecting important movements in creative culture. It's an opportunity to sound off on each other and make sense of the complex, intertwined world we live in. We try to come to some sort of conclusion in order to be helpful to you, our listeners, but really, we are working through things and we appreciate you working through them with us. If you like what you hear and want to help us keep going, you can support us on patreon.com slash Let's get into it. Oh, so before we jumped into the booth, Jerry, who happens to be a part of FM Below Ground, said that he listened to last week's episode about the renaming of Chinatown Market. They're so supportive of us here. <laughs> they let us record here. They, they listen, listen to our podcast. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, guys. I don't know if you've thought about it since last week. Not really, right? I thought about it, but I didn't listen back, unlike you, because well, you edited. I did edit it, right? Yeah. So uh, this is the thing that I felt... I or we were missing from the conversation and it's some something to do with sort of power paradigms and just like this, I don't know if it's struggle is the right word, but like this, this desire to create more power and impact for yourself, especially if you're an Asian American in the United States, right? And what I mean by that is ultimately our conversation never really addressed what it means to be Asian American in America amidst everything going on. Sure. Because we don't also have that capability. Yeah. yeah. However, what I wanted to add was I think that when it comes down to this whole landscape of how things are playing out currently, there's something, I don't know if dangerous is the right word, but there's something dehumanizing when your own narrative is not something you can control, mm -hmm. which I felt perhaps that's the issue and challenge and the bigger challenge that we didn't touch about because probably I didn't, we didn't know, right? But I was thinking about it more and more because I was like, man, I feel like there's something we're missing here, but I just don't know what it is. In short, I think that when you're Asian and obviously there's a lot of nuance and like fine layer detail that needs to be gone through when you're Asian and you yourself cannot even have 
some sort of um, interpretation or like you can't even really and control the narrative is not it sounds really bad but I actually think that it's necessary potentially in light of this because if you don't have that narrative then like it's up for interpretation and there's no way to create some sort of like point of not reference but uh like a point that grounds everything yeah I mean I don't know I don't remember what I said last week in detail I'm pretty sure I did say something along like a week later the lines of it being important that there's more stories i mean at inner trend with our friends julie and tanya we talk a lot about narrative plenitude which is this idea of yeah. just like the more stories the better right but there is a challenge with that which is that you know the belief is that no singular story is the main narrative and that's tricky yes that's, that's totally. hard to like rally people around yep. if i do have any new thoughts this is the last thing before we get into it if i do have any new thoughts between last week's recording and now it would be because I saw a bit of a Twitter dispute um, in relation to some Asian American accounts that have quite big followings being gatekeeping in a way about saying, okay, if you are Asian American, this is how you should be reacting in this situation. And then other people obviously took that not very well. The the aspect where they felt like, who are yeah. you to dictate how we should respond? So or my feel. only new thought is, I do think last week we me. had to be cautious. And, it, you know, I would say this again, is that if you did feel really strongly about the Chinatown market, like that's how you feel. And I would not go and say, oh, no, you shouldn't feel that way. You can potentially help people see the other side. And I think that's part of it. But yeah, you're right. And it's like, what what can you, what can like you do? But like this more than anything, I would not feel comfortable ever saying like, oh, that's like not an appropriate reaction. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. All, right. All right. This week, not talking about race. Not talking about race. You go first, yeah. So my topic for the day comes from Anne Helen Peterson's newsletter, Culture Study. In a recent issue of her newsletter, she wrote about our relationship to work and our sense of ownership over our time. And she opens with talking about getting ready for her second vaccine shot and clearing her schedule in advance, like for those couple of days, so that she wouldn't feel um, the need to work because there's the potential of serious side effects. I did that. she could be. Oh, did you as well? I did, and Nicole did too, and Nicole needed it. She was like in bed for like, (laughs) I don't know how many hours. Yeah. And yeah. I think that's totally fair. And that's what she said in her newsletter, that the response she got from everyone who, who messaged her and she was like, hey, I'm getting the vaccine. So can we do this the week after was like, oh, yeah, of course, totally. And she commented on the fact that, you know, it was a privilege to be able to clear her schedule at all. But she, in relation to doing that, thought a lot about why it's difficult for her to say no regularly when people ask for her time, no matter what they're asking for her time on. And so some of the things she outlines about difficulties in saying no, one of them is it's hard to say no to people when they know you are the master of your own time. I thought this was a good one to open with because I was wondering if you feel the same way. Yeah. Someone today was asking me because I owed them something like, why are you so busy lately? What are you working on? And I was like, well, I'm working on a lot of stuff that maybe doesn't touch you because it was like someone I work with. Right. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's a good point. Like. I mean, in some ways, I I was talking to someone about this and this is the blessing and curse of starting your own business and whatnot. It's like you kind of control your own time. You create your own schedule. Basically, you do whatever you want, right? And it's your success is also predicated on 
how you spend your time as a business owner or whatever, right? Sure. So, well, I was actually a little bit taken aback. I'm like, how dare you ask me how I'm spending my time? Because I'm like, I myself see myself as quite busy, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then at the same time, I could see people from on the outside who are thinking like, yo, man, are you just like doing nothing? In some ways, though, I will say that my ability to control my time and then and the way I set up my schedule is in a way that I really enjoy that I'll feel like questions about how I'm spending my time all day, every day. Well, it's just strange. I think we've hit on it. And, you know, this is what Pearson writes about. It is strange that people make assumptions about your time when you're not employed full time. But then if you are employed full time and they know that, then it's like you being busy is defensible Mm -hmm. because it's it's obvious to an outsider how you're spending your time and where all your time goes. Whereas like for people who structure their own time to an outsider, it's really abstract. Well, I have no idea what Eugene does to fill his time. And then it, it, but it's strange that you would have to defend that versus someone who's just employed regularly full time. Another point she made was about gender stereotypes that come into play in relation to saying no. And I do think some, somehow this subconsciously does affect me even though I know I'm playing into a gender stereotype. And this is a quote from the newsletter. No makes me feel like an asshole. Many overextended women have told me they find no particularly difficult to access. For women, there's a gendered expectation of even more availability of receptiveness and eagerness, which makes a no read as cold or standoffish or bitchy. And yeah, that's pretty interesting. I think, I don't know if Nicole has ever mentioned this to you or other women in your life, but... It doesn't even have to be true for us to be concerned about coming off that way. Like, it's possible that no one in my life hasn't interpreted no as Sharice being a bitch, but I probably still subconsciously changed my language to, like, prevent people from making that assumption. Because, yeah, that's something that we see a lot in the professional context of how people behave Right. There's an expectation on how someone should behave. Men can be as aggressive as they want in any sort of professional setting. And it's like, oh, yeah, that's how you do it. But you can't really flip the script for women. Yeah. You just can't. It's like, oh, there's something else that comes into play. Oh, there was this really unfortunate study result that came out recently where they had women and men do the same presentation to like a test group of people. And they had the woman and the men give the same jokes, like make the same jokes while making that presentation. So it's like a, it's not stand-up comedy. It's like a business presentation, but with a couple of jokes. And the jokes damaged the way the audience perceived women, but improved the way the audience saw men. Yeah. So it's just really interesting how like the same content needs to be delivered differently when you're like navigating assumptions people might have about your gender and yeah what you're going to say. And then this last point I think is really important to freelancers, which is that saying no is difficult because you feel like I might be missing out on some big opportunity. Mm -hmm. Even if it doesn't seem like a good opportunity, there's always this part of your mind where you're like, this could be the one, like maybe this is the thing that is the best connection I'm going to make or is going to be $100,000. Or you have no idea where the next job is coming from. Yeah, exactly. And so I think that's going to make you always question whether no was a good decision, even if you are already like overtaxed. Yeah, it's, it, it kind of fucks with you when you look at an opportunity you took on 
that had some warning signs, but you took it anyways. And now you're like, man, this is a lot of work. Yeah. But at the end of the day, I mean, it is true. Like, I think that when we, when we put ourselves through the grinder and take on shitty work or whatnot, this is a bit of a, uh, an adjacent point here, but I personally like to put myself in uncomfortable situations because I know that win or lose or some sort of like learning experience from it. And to be honest, sometimes you get bored and you're like, man, I just got to try something new. That's me personally anyways. It's a reflection on whether we are good at assessing what we need and what an unknown opportunity offers. You can't possibly say yes to everything. And some things are a gamble, but it's a question of how good of a gamble is it? You know, what are the odds here for it being something new that is worth your time? I will say that by virtue of you acknowledging the fact that you do need to think and debrief, that it actually is a really important process because then you kind of, you sift through everything and you kind of understand like, what are the learnings here that I can derive? Because as much as you and I spend essentially every episode, I I was going to, I was going to combine, analyze and dissect. Anisect. Anisect. <laughs> Analsect. It's terrible. Anyways. That's a terrible word. Analyze and dissect something. That it's like not always what's going on in your mind, right? Mm-hmm. It is so, sort of a learned behavior that if you do it, you it makes your life a little bit more difficult because you soon start to analyze everything and you have an opinion about everything. Yeah. But then for things that do matter to you, there is a very definitive way on how to move forward and improve. And I think that's actually the sort of better aspect or the thing that you want to embrace with it. Because it's true. It's like debriefing or like when things go wrong, everyone is very quick to sort of either solve it or point blame. It's usually point blame and then solve it. And then after you solve it, you often have to think to yourself, well, how do I make sure it doesn't happen again? Or what were the warning signs that led to this? Or is it a perfect storm Mm. of 50 variables that all combined? And then that's why things went wrong. Yeah, I mean, that's the ideally acquired skill rather than having a kind of default reaction to everything. She then kind of switches to talking about how businesses function nowadays and what managers expect from you in in general. So not like identifying any single like bad company or a bad manager, but talking in general about this workforce culture where People are financially rewarded for continual exponential growth and managers might give this appearance of being generous, but it's kind of fake. It's just performative. It's surface level, right? Mm -hmm. So here's another quote. Whatever shit the world throws at you, the work endures. It's not that you want to be a heartless robot. It's that the market is hostile to those who aren't. No matter what your manager assures you, the manager's crisis refrain of feel free to take some time if you need it is fundamentally a sorting question. Are you someone who needs it or are you someone who can ignore that you do? I love that. I ask a lot of sorting questions because it's like a way for you to derive a signal to interpret what this person's about. Yeah. And I think. (sighs) Yes. Sorting questions. I'm going to use that. Go for it. I'm stealing that. (laughs) Take it. Be the world's best sorting question asker but in a way it's okay well okay this it continues as well um later on she says even without an employer we ask ourselves the same questions are you a person who needs it or are you a hustler who prides themselves on getting things done are you a person who needs it or do you recognize times as crisis as a moment to distinguish yourself are you a person who needs rest and reprieve or 
have you wholly internalized the worst manager in the world and allowed them to shade every hour of your day? And so she set, she set up these questions in a very deliberate way, yeah. right? To indicate that like our brains dysfunction in a way where we know the answer is that we need rest, but instead we want to be this other thing. We want to be this hustler who gets things done or someone who can distinguish themselves in crisis. And so we ignore the honest answer about who we are, what yeah. type of person we yeah. are. With these questions, even like that process, like she breaks it down, right? Like recognizing what your thought pattern is. Even when you recognize your thought pattern of asking yourself that question and like which answer you give yourself and then the path you pursue, it's very hard to change that. Like I don't know, I don't know what my recommendation is for trying to change that thought pattern. This is an interesting sort of personal question to ask yourself is I always look at people's changing behavior based off reward. So what is the reward for changing your patterns or your thought process? Because I think that if you over-index on the reward in the beginning stages, hopefully it builds some sort of muscle memory. Mm. But I think that the reward element, when it's not clear or it takes too long, there's a chance that people just fall off. And then you look at some of the big existential problems humans are facing, and the reason why it's hard to get behind it is because the reward isn't significantly strong enough. Mm. Like, look at the difference between trying to stamp out the coronavirus and global warming. Both are existential crises. crises. One is more acute, and the other one is sort of a slow, drawn-out death. And we tend to be more able to correct things that have appear to have urgency versus the climate crisis. And then on top of that, which is urgent, but we don't do. We've talked about this before too. It's just that the modern media complex, modern capitalistic complex, all of these things do as much as they can to eat up all our time to leave us with as little time as possible to which we try to solve with the most convenient measures like a delivery app. Like, you just know. have this knee-jerk reaction of doing this thing. and that Exactly. You, you've been trained to, we've been trained to, to do that, to do the knee-jerk reaction like the delivery app, to use yeah. the delivery app. I was going to ask you, what do you need in terms of rest personally? I don't know, seven hours? No, I mean, not just sleep, oh. but, you know, this question, these, these particular sorting questions that she asked are about what kind of worker are you essentially and how much rest, rest do you need in relation to work i think it's purely a rest how thing. do you recognize that you need rest just whether i'm physically tired i recognize this is that sometimes there are certain things if i don't have enough rest and just can't do it like it could be something that's not difficult but by psychologically i'm not present can't do it but i also recognize that my ability to do something based off of having a good sleep it goes up like exponentially. Mm. And I, this is like this weird anecdotal thing, but I actually, I think it's proven by science. You know, when it was in, in the wintertime, usually like I, I take a cold shower or I guess anytime, like I just finish with a cold shower and your ability to weather the, the cold shower depends on like how much sleep you have. Like your pain tolerance changes with how much sleep you have. Oh, yeah. That is interesting. Yeah. So then when you're running on less sleep, something that, might be mildly painful you experience it as more yes painful. Yeah, yeah 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 so that's my th- like pain being a thing that you don't want to do like same thing yeah. pain could be psychological it'd be physical or not i think i'm better now at recognizing needing rest but i in the past felt 
a lot of actual guilt about needing rest or feeling insufficient, like personally insufficient about having to rest when other people are working or having to rest when there were demands being asked of me. Mm -hmm. I was tired, basically. Like I didn't feel like I could physically keep up. I think this is a common experience where you feel like, okay, I got to push through because I don't want to let people down and I don't want to affect the way people see me. I wonder how how well most people know themselves personally. You don't think that well? No, I don't think For example, last night I was like, I was dead tired. I'm like, but I have some stuff I have to do. And I was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take my my usual 15 minute nap at like 10 p.m. And then I'm going to wake up and I'll bang through this and I'll go to sleep. And that's exactly kind of how it played out. And I was actually low-key proud of myself because it kind of played exactly into my own hands because I woke up sufficiently refreshed to do this stupid legal work and then I was good to go. (laughs) Okay, maybe my answer is more of a two-parter. One, I think people, there are definitely people who don't know themselves very well. I can speak from my own experience that I think in the last couple of years, I got to know myself a lot better than the 20-some years before that. Um, I guess part of that's being a kid and becoming a person at all. Yeah. And then... I think people do know who they are, but like I said, would rather they be someone else. So you might feel physically, you understand, I'm tired. I actually only do about four good hours of work a day, but then you don't want, you you wish you were someone else. You wish you were the person who could do eight good hours of work a day and who could, you know, grind late at night and wake up early in the morning and not complain about it. Yeah. And so even though there's a part of you that recognizes this is really who I am, you wish you were this other person instead. Yeah, It's interesting because I think I felt myself much more comparative and referential. But the thing that's kind of gone off in my head is that, and obviously you need some sort of external validation to get there, is that if you yourself have an understanding of what you're good at and just almost magnify your strengths, then it pushes to the side that the deficiencies but you have to have like enough of a clear thought and mind to understand what that is because yeah. it's not to say that you don't work on your your weaknesses it's more about the majority of my thoughts are dominated by what i'm good at yep, yep but I, yep. I think that it's also not the, it's also something that you'd be aware of in phases because if you adopted that mentality at the start of your career probably wouldn't go very well that's true one of the things i like to say a lot is what happens today doesn't need to be the same strategy as tomorrow or the day after. It's like everything changes relative to external variables. I think what you said about thinking about strengths and weaknesses makes a lot of sense, especially because we don't tend to focus on improving in our strengths. We just kind of like that ride, you know, like, oh, I'm already good at it. I'll just keep doing that thing that I'm good at. But the truth is like you can continue to improve in your strengths, but we put a lot of energy into the one or two things that really like bother us about ourselves which is like you said which isn't to say that we don't work on those things but letting that occupy as much of our brain as it does is actually probably not gonna you know give us the returns we're looking for i've been told many times that i talk too much in meetings and you know what i did stop talking as much and i realized (laughs) the output actually doesn't really suffer just shut the hell up now no seriously it's like people everyone's happier because i'm not introducing the sort of like 0.1 of things that need to be addressed because i'm always thinking like oh like maybe in a very detailed manner and like the reality is that this outcome won't really be successful or fail because of 
my input. I appreciate the people in your life that told you that. It was Malin. It's good. Good for them. Good for Alex. So, you know, she brings it back to, Peterson brings it back to the shot, the vaccine shot, and says the great thing about the shot and why it worked in clearing up her schedule was because it was clearly a physical incapacity. No, I know I'm going to be like potentially physically unable, like equivalent to, you know, being in the hospital or having a surgery, that type of thing. Yeah. And so I can clear my schedule. I don't have to work. And so thinking about that concept, she recommends when you do need time, you know, be very clear about those guardrails. So it has to be a system. Essentially, you're going to love this like a system of regularly scheduled three-day weekends rather than waiting until you feel super burned out and then taking a holiday. I think it's so hard. It would work better because it's not dependent on like personal liability. It's, I think it's tough. Oh yeah. I'm not saying it's easy, but I, I believe that this is true. Some people do that on a micro scale where they'll block out times in their calendar and be like, Hey, between two to four is my personal writing time. Yeah. It's kind of the same thing. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is that same thing. Instead of leaving it up to how you feel at any given moment, it's baked into something that's structural, right? And so she actually says, I don't know if this is controversial or not, but she thinks that companies should get rid of unlimited paid time off because the concept of unlimited paid time off is just performative. It's Mm -hmm. shallow. It's not actual because people don't feel like they can take it off. The structures of the company means that they couldn't even access all that unlimited PTO Mm. if they wanted to. And she also says, you know, when you're communicating with others, there's a potential to extend more grace in your communication so that people understand, you know, what is an immediate need versus something I need two weeks from now instead of leaving things ambiguous. So these are, I think that's true for working and personal relationships. Like sometimes we send each other things like random links and you might say no reply needed. Because even in your personal relationships, people can feel like, oh, I owe you the time of a response. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Last point that she makes, which I can't speak about personally, but I have been thinking a lot, I think, in relation to media news lately, is that she talks about unions. And she writes, unions help codify a distance, not just because the worker and their employer, but the worker and their work. They de-romanticize employers' most seductive and manipulative tales of family. They distribute the burden of resisting shitty workplace practices. They have periodically failed, and I have no illusions concerning the perfection of unions, but it's worth thinking about the weakness of relying on others' assurances that they'll act in good faith. So I think, again, like I said, I don't have personal experience with being part of a union or being in a workplace that had unions being organized, but I really believe in this aspect where there has it's a continuation of the previous point essentially that you can't just rely on your manager being a good person or your boss being a good person because that changes depending on how well is the company doing you know how much money are we making and they're like personal feelings right so that's why you need to have things that are stronger in place we can't rely on people to be good people basically you need regulation unfortunately yep 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 So I think the concept of unions is good, or even if not a union specifically, the fact that there are regulatory reasons why a 
company gives you certain things and doesn't make you do certain things, right? But then many of our listeners have kind of atypical working situations where they might work part-time or they freelance long-term for a client or they have their own businesses. So how do you translate that, that system? I think two things that I see as being critically important are the negotiation phase and timelines. So basically negotiations kind of put into writing like what the expectation is and you guys have agreed upon it. And you, the expectation might be like three rounds of edits, right? And this is the timeline so that you know that if things fall within these defined goals, then something, I basically, in, in, in many ways, you're protecting yourself from an overly zealous client or you're also creating some sort of like legal protection. That's how I would look at it. It sounds, I mean, that's just the reality because you're fighting a lack of a system with a system. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's hard, but I've recommended so many people that, and I'm not perfect. I have definitely worked without contracts, but I do recommend everyone to have a contract in place before they do any work. Yeah. And even just the, I mean, the contract functions in an actual legal way. It is a real legal obligation between two people, but just the fact that you as an independent worker come out with a contract conveys a certain type of message. I am a person who works by a system. Yes. These are my expectations. And you're going to work with me within those expectations. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, do, I do think it's hard. I think this, the recommendations are hard and people often go into independent work for a sense of flexibility. But I think over long term, being overly flexible will exhaust you. Yeah. You constantly have to make new decisions. Everything is custom. Yeah, everything is custom. Every situation is custom. And obviously that's a great privilege in many ways. But when it comes to, you know, distance between you and your work and having ownership of your time, I think it's it's good to put it put up some sort of system for yourself yeah. for sustainability. Let's move on. My subject this week is scientists need to get better at talking to the public. Why doesn't training seem to help? So initially, this sounds like a, what do you call it? Kind of like an off the beaten path type topic for today. And one of the reasons why I find this so interesting is that whether you're a graphic designer, photographer, some sort of creative, I think there's a lot of parallels that can be drawn with scientists because sometimes you're communicating complex ideas and thoughts to people that don't necessarily understand what you're saying on the other end. So that's why this kind of leapt out at me. Like, obviously, what we do, the industries we work in don't really touch science like that. But I'm very interested and curious to know, amidst a lot of challenging times that are coming, you know, I I think things are going to get a lot harder before they get easier, right? How are we going to set ourselves up? How are there synergies? And what are the underlying solutions? I would say, however, that this article is more of like a quasi state of the union, kind of explaining how things are going and not necessarily providing a ton of solutions. Yeah, it doesn't. Yeah. And this piece comes courtesy of NeimanLab.org. 
which is, I guess in some ways, it's like a, a publication that focuses on the current events and things going on within media. And this piece was written by three authors, Robert Weiss, Margaret Rubega, and Robert Capers. I think one of the best ways to start this off is to read these two paragraphs towards the beginning. Today, when curbing COVID-19 requires hundreds of millions of Americans to get vaccinated, it's more urgent than ever for scientists to be able to communicate effectively with the public. The challenge was clear long before the pandemic. Scientists began to realize they needed to do better at explaining their findings in the 1990s, after fossil fuel corporations and conservative politicians rejected evidence that the globe was warming at an alarming rate. In response, a range of programs sprang up that were designed to teach everyone, from veteran scientists to young graduate students, how to better communicate their often arcane and confusing research. So there have been a lot of various courses and training methods applied to scientists, ranging from storytelling and improvisation to coaching with PR specialists. Yet, if you look around the world right now, I think there's an increasing anti-science sentiment. I don't know if you were going to talk about this more, but were we going to talk about vaccine education in general? I wasn't really going to talk about it so much as that it might have connected. Well, that's kind of the intro, right? Yeah. In terms of how this is immediately relevant. And it's a little bit of a hook in the yeah. article in terms of like, you understand as a reader, people should. Well, OK, let me take that back. People might not be on board with the vaccine, but everybody knows there's a lot of conversation going on about vaccines. Yes. Yeah. Even most recently so, with the Johnson and Johnson vaccine in the States. But anyway, I would just want to ask you if you saw the Google commercial. No, I didn't. This is the only bit of vaccine education I have seen so far that I thought would work. Yeah. And it's non-scientific like at all. Like yeah. there's no science in it. I mean, it, it tells you that the vaccine is good and trustworthy, yeah. but only implicitly. Should we play it? It's we engaged. can play it, but there's no dialogue. Oh. Okay, let me just tell you what the whole thing. I mean, it's also a Google ad, so it's very Google. But anyway, I'm going to describe it anyway. So what it is, is almost the entire thing is just um, a Google browser with a search bar. And it's then someone typing, typing different things. And then it's like a quick flash through of all these pandemic things, hand sanitizer, toilet paper, you know, searching all those type things. And then it gets to COVID vaccine, vaccine booking, and then back to like wedding, vacation, family stuff. So oh. it's just this like really quick narration of people's lives over the last 13 months through the Google search bar. And it was, I don't need to be convinced, right? So like, I can't say, am I the target audience of this ad? But I felt like this would work on someone yeah, yeah. in a convincing it, way. It goes back to the reward system, right? Yes. What are you being rewarded by? It focuses on that. Like the vaccine unlocks this future where I get to see my family and go to weddings and stuff like that. Yeah. And it doesn't focus on what the efficacy rate is. Yeah. So I thought that was an interesting contrast. I mean, the reason why I didn't want to jump too much into the pure science element of it was because I wanted to root it back in some sort of shared experience that maybe scientists and I guess marketers or creators might share, right? My whole thing was understanding at, at its core, I think, messages that are effective, understand who they're speaking to, and understand what drives those audiences. Right now, maybe that's the missing point because the academic structures that are required for you to arrive at a solution don't necessarily serve as the best vehicle to tell the story. Mm -hmm. and, and they also reference this, right? Like there's been various ways of trying to get scientists to improve or change how they communicate things. And I don't know if it's the right way of looking at it, 
because I often I often think that if there's an ideal way to do something and it's not effective, you almost have to throw that idea out. You have to like start over again and build back up. So in, in some ways, what happens is that you start at the very top and you come down. So mm. let's use like a fashion house, right? That might start with a um, super premium item and then they build a diffusion line a few years later. The opposite would be a very simple solution to something that only does one thing. And then as you get traction and some sort of audience, then you start adding stuff on. Yeah. Right. So there's different philosophies. That's true. But I think that when it comes to this, it's almost as though we've tried so hard to leverage the this, this scientific route, which is the sort of luxury fashion approach. And it hasn't worked. So now you almost need to like, you need to almost start from the lowest common denominator and then build yourself up. I mean, this is really relevant actually to the Google ad because yeah. the Google ad uses very, very simple concept of you get the vaccine and you get to go back to a relatively normal life. And do things you enjoy doing do with people. do things you enjoy doing. And then it's not any more complicated than that, but that provides you enough of a base to add in those details of, okay, these are the vaccines available. This is where they were tested. You know, this is the efficacy type uh, like that. I'm making this up, but like at some point, Google, especially being Google, they could take that idea and that ad and just change what you search. So if you are like a big NFL fan, I'm making this up, but like instead of searching for a vacation, you're searching for an NFL game. Sure. Right. I mean, <laughs> maybe they did do that. I did not look into yeah, this enough, yeah. to be honest. They could have changed those videos for who, whatever yours, you yeah. know, type of search results are. We didn't really get into this, but the meat of the article is quite depressing. So essentially, the authors are professors that teach, that train scientists in communications. And then they did a study on their own effectiveness and basically showed that they were ineffective. They thought they were effective. They thought they were effective. But they well, were. They, they thought they were effective and students also rated them very yeah. highly. So people who went to the training were happy about the training they received. But then when they did this whole like rigorous testing with different audience groups who didn't know who was trained and not, it showed that there was no change yeah. in how good scientists were about conveying these complicated topics. So, I mean, I, I really appreciate that they tested it themselves. They didn't just say, OK, we're doing good work here. Let's keep going. Yeah. They figured out actually what we're doing doesn't turn out to necessarily be working. Yeah. One thing I do want to say is this last article. Obviously, there's a quite strong anti-science sentiment that's going on right now. And this last quote, I think, kind of sums it all up. We don't believe our results show that science communication training is worthless. Students unquestionably leave our courses much more aware of the pitfalls of using jargon, speaking in complex sentences, and talking about the bottom line. It just appears that knowledge doesn't translate to enough of a change in their use of jargon, complex sentences, and ability to get the point to change how audience score them. I think if I was to look at how to improve science communication as a whole, it almost requires us to rethink who's effective at communicating and leveraging their methods in an authentic way. So we've talked about it at length. It's like stuff like memes go a long, long ways. And I think there's ways to like incorporate that type of very clear cut direct communication. But one thing I also have been looking at a lot lately is there's quite a bit of educational content on YouTube done from quote unquote non-professionals. And when I mean non-professionals, I mean not a professor of biology or not a professor of finance. It's like people that have learned it and then gone on to retell how things work. And I think that's actually a really powerful tool because people that are great at creating content, and I say that 
as like this sort of like catch-all for all creators, perhaps there's opportunities to leverage them to tell stories of meaning or value. And I mean, not necessarily you taking a product and then endorsing it. I'm actually saying like leveraging people that have a great skill of communicating and then onboarding them into the world of like climate change. I had a similar thought, but not exactly the same about speaking to those people, but more that the training could involve platforms like YouTube and Twitter and Reddit. And that could be more effective training for scientists and how to communicate if they were tasked with start a podcast, do 10 episodes on whichever complicated subject you're studying and see what the listener responses are. See if you get any listeners. Same thing for YouTube or Reddit or Twitter, you know, like try this format, you know, fit within that format in an appealing way. And those interest metrics are so different compared to being in a training in a university, which is part of what I think might be the problem is about being within a college and only having to speak to the your classmates and your teachers who are all speaking in a very similar way versus like once I bet these people already use the Internet for different purposes. Yeah. Right. It's just like you have to change your mode of communication from being in college in this like academic world versus like what you would say online publicly. Like I don't really want to dismiss school, right? I think school oh, is no. critically important. I would say that I've learned a lot of things that probably emerge from a textbook, but were represented to me in a different way. And, you know, I look at let's let's look at the world of finance, right? And YouTube. I think financial YouTube, like Fin YouTube, if that's even a thing, is like basically FinTube. FinTube is like actually a really interesting way because these are relatively young people not all of them are necessarily professionals and i'm not talking about like what companies invest in i'm just talking about like understanding certain objective things like this is what this is and this is what it means and this is how you need to look at it like that's not necessarily up for determination and opinion it's more like this is the process i mean i think we're talking about communications being a completely separate skill yes so people become experts in different ways including university right and they can be an expert in a subject matter and the best like in the world and that really does not mean that they will be good at communicating it to anyone else you see this a lot in professional sports where someone was an amazing player but not a great coach right different exactly. skill sets exactly yeah. yeah so i guess in, in short my biggest takeaways are like i said this was less about helping scientists improve so much as helping anyone that has to relay complex information I think it really comes down to understanding the audience and what are the factors that get these people excited, right? Because I think ultimately that is how you sort of like close the loop. It's like, well, this audience is on Snapchat and they love this. So how do I find a way to build an innovative or like relevant system or way to communicate to them? Well, you know, what's interesting about your subject is that we're talking about it on a podcast that we've been doing for a couple of years now. Yeah. And we talk about some complicated things. I think I've gotten better since we started. I significantly have improved. Yeah. Nobody should go listen to the first 10 episodes, in my opinion. Well, yeah. And I think a lot of it comes down to also just finding a way to leverage understood references. Like, I would say I'm relatively good at finding a reference somewhere else, like that sports analogy of like a coach. Like, I'm pretty good at finding those to help explain a concept in a foreign world to somebody in their world and on their terms. 
for me, I think the biggest reason why I've improved is that we do this every week. And yeah, it's definitely like I a skill. have to do it. Well, I mean, have to in the sense that we've decided we agreed to do it. And it's a time where I get to practice every week. I also have to hear myself back because we take turns editing. Yeah. And that makes a big difference, too, because then I essentially do an analysis on how well I think I did in presenting the subject. I mean, I mean in terms of the co communications question, I don't think that you just have to be a scientist. I think a lot of people want to get better at communicating. Yeah, I think so, too, because it is frustrating when you have something that's locked in your mind and you don't know how to communicate it properly or people don't understand you because there are moments before where I felt that exact same problem where, you know, more words does not necessarily mean that more people will understand more quickly. Yeah. Right. It might just actually serve to complicate things. I think it's particularly frustrating when you really believe something is a good idea or a good project. And the reason you can't get people on board isn't because the core thing isn't good, but because you're just not communicating it effectively. Yeah. I imagine that's how scientists feel, actually. Yeah. Like, this is such a great thing, but how come nobody is listening to us or paying attention? Yeah. Good place to cap things off. Yeah. I think that's a good place to wrap up for the day. If you are interested in hearing more about Macon, reading and listening to some of our stories to focus on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at Macon.com, M-A-E-K-A-N.com. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by sharing this podcast with a friend or supporting us via Patreon.com slash Macon. Also, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email myself at Sharice at Macon.com, C-H-A-R-I-S, or Eugene at Eugene at Macon.com, E-U-G-E-N-E. -E. We love hearing from you. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up.